welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. Today we have Eric Wilson. He's the Thomas H. Pritchard Professor of English at Wake Forest University. He's the author of books Against Happiness in Praise of Melancholy, an LA Times bestseller. Everyone Loves a Good Train Wreck, Why We Can't Look Away, and Keep It Fake, Inventing an Authentic Life, as well as many other books exploring connections among literature, film, and psychology. And his newest book, available now, is called How to Be Weird, An Off-Kilter Guide to Living a One-of-a-Kind Life. Welcome, Eric, and thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I look forward to our conversation. Absolutely. And so to quote a passage from Eric's book, Eric Rob. So great creators have made the old trade their revoir. The eccentric artist is a cliche, but not an inaccurate one. Truman Capote feared planes with two nuns on board and avoided rooms containing yellow roses. Estee Lauder touched the faces of random strangers. Monkeys, peacocks, a bear, a crane, and a crocodile were the pets of Lord Byron, who imbibed wine from skulls. Frida Cogho also enjoyed a menagerie, including a fawn named Gra Granizo and an eagle named uh, Gertrudis Cacablanca, or White Shit Gertrude. Charles Dickens <laughs> stuffed the paw of his dead cat Bob and affixed it to an ivory ivory letter opener. A poet Gerard de Nerval walked a lobster on a leash. Einstein gathered cigarette buds and smoked them in his pipe. Enamored of oxidization, Dolly peed on the, on the brass bands of fountain pens. Uh, Shirley Jackson, author of The Lottery, pr practiced witchcraft. To finish The Hunchback of Notre Dame on time, Victor Hugo locked himself in his room naked. 19th century pro poet Frederick Schiller stored rotten apples in his desk and inhaled them as he wrote. French composer Eric Satie consumed only white food and collected umbrellas. Steve Jobs ate so many carrots his skin turned <laughs> orange. Buckmeister Fuller, architect of the geo geodesic dome, wore three watches, slept only two hours in the day, and updated his diary every 15 minutes. Maya Angelou, Angelou wrote best in hotel rooms from 6.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. She required that the sheets never be cleaned and that Sherry, playing cards, and the Bible always be on hand. Yayo... Yayoi uh, Kusama, artist of Infinite Mirrors, chooses to live in an asylum and paint her world in polka dots. Tita Swinton, Swinton uh, sleeps in glass boxes in the middle of museum museums, and Bjork crawls to rehearsals from her apartment. So this is um, incredibly strange stuff, <laughs> as is, I'm sure, obvious to many of our audience members. So what's so interesting, I think, in kind of reading this book and just getting kind of a background about who you are and why weirdness and authenticity is just, and generally speaking, is so important to you. Uh, I started thinking about how we kind of have this sort of a dualistic conception of weirdness because on the one hand we kind of shy away from it and most of us want to fit in and obviously we don't really we want to kind of stand in the background and we don't want to really stand out but on the other hand these people that we greatly admired most of whom i just read about uh they are really strange and they are super eccentric mm -hmm. right so how do you think we kind of make sense of that that on the one hand we're sort of freaked out mm -hmm. by it and we shy away from it but yet you know in the juxtaposition of it we kind of admire it and in some ways we mm -hmm. want to be it too at the same time yeah. So, so, I mean, obviously those examples you read are, are extreme examples of very brilliant people doing quite outlandish things. And I guess in my book, I'm, I'm not really saying we should, would all necessarily do that. I, I think the, the main thesis of my book is that the part of us that feels weirdest to ourselves, well, that's our, that's really our, our most individualistic self. Like who you are is, is you at your weirdest because it's the weird parts of us that don't conform to the mainstream that don't conform to conventions, uh, th those parts that maybe we're a little ashamed of sometimes, or maybe we're a little afraid of sometimes, or maybe make us feel awkward sometimes. But my feeling is those are the parts of us that separate us from everybody else. 
And what these artists were brave enough to do was simply express those parts of themselves as flamboyantly as, as they could. But I think all of us probably do feel like, well, what really makes me different from other people? In a world where we're all sort of bombarded by by media with the, the social you know social media or, or watching prestige tv or movies there's a real it's real difficult not to live a cliched kind of life you know not to just kind of follow the models that we see around us all the time so i hope that this book is kind of a call to individuality um as as much as anything um because mainly that makes life more fun and and, and more interesting because let's face it life is predictable and monotonous most of the time especially the older we get so, you know, anything we can do to just, just, just swerve a little bit um, from the norm can make life feel kind of more interesting and stimulating. Um, let me put it just another way. Um, I think I define the, the weird in this book as defamiliarizing the familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, what does that mean? Uh, well, right when this book came out, I would had a beard for the longest time and for like 10 years and I shaved my beard. And you know, you know that look, I don't know if you've ever done that. And you like, like look in the mirror the next day after you shaved your beard, it's like, who is that? It's yeah. like me and it's not me. It's like, it's, it's familiar, but it's not. Um, or say, you, you know, you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and you turn the light on, it's like, and look in the mirror, it's like, who's, who's that guy? So mm-hmm. yeah. and most of the, the 99 exercises in the book are, are ways just to kind of give us like a little bit of a nudge um, out of our normal tracks of life, out of the ruts of life. Um, and again, it just in hopes that it makes us feel more alive, more stimulated. Mm-hmm. No, totally. I, I love the book. I actually went through um, like, I would say 75% of yeah. the exercises. Yeah. yeah. So there's this one that really, really, I resonated with, which is like, oh, come up with a, a different identity for yourself. Give yourself a different name, different sort of character traits. What's that person like? Right. And kind of embody or become that person, right? Yeah. And then anytime you go through your sort of uh, uh, daily, you know, the, the automaticity of things, yeah. right? You 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 might think to that back to that character, identify how would that character sort of take it, right? Yeah. And I I love it because I got really weird with it, really really weird with <laughs> Good. it. Good. Uh, yeah. Like for example, uh, let's say, okay, so in terms of like reactivity, right? Let's say somebody's. I mean, not that I get insulted or anything like that or whatever, but say somebody does a little roast joke and maybe where I would have normally found myself kind of reacting or something like that. I'm like, no, this other character instantly stoic, super stoic, will not react, will also be sort of a good sport, you know, as far as that goes, kind of go with the joke and and that sort of thing. And uh, I even got weirder than that. Maybe I won't get into it kind of in the realms of like kind of like magic and stuff like that like you kind of have an impact on your environment but it's interesting it made my brain go to so many different places and without having read like an exercise like that in the book I don't think I would have really done that or or if I do it would have been very rare right so it got me kind of out of my ego as far as that fantastic yeah well I'm so glad you brought that exercise up um mainly because I think that exercise might have been one of the first I came up with, um, mainly because it, it has a lot of bearing on, on my life. Um, sometimes people ask me, well, what's the origin of this book? Um, and strangely enough, it it comes from my my struggle with depression and what one of my therapists told me to do um, a long, long time ago. Um, my daughter at that time was two years old. She's now 21. And I was in I was really kind of dipped into a deep depression. And I felt like I wasn't being a good father because I couldn't really connect to her. I was withdrawn. 
So I went to my therapist and he said, look, your problem is you're trying to be a good dad. You're trying to be a good dad, like in, like in a conventional way, hmm. like be a responsible dad, a, a wise dad, um, an educational dad. He says, that's not your bag. He says, you're a pretty strange guy. You strike me as kind of funny. Why don't you create a character called crazy dad? <laughs> and whenever you're around your daughter, your only goal is to make her laugh. That's all. That's all you have to do. And hmm. I did it. And it, it kind of worked. Um, mm -hmm. so, so this idea that, you know, when, when we're not feeling great about ourselves, we have the imagination to, to imagine sort of other characters, other masks, other persona, and kind of you know, live into them a little bit. It can be fun and it kind of liberate us from when we feel insulted or, or, or pain, but also it can be a really powerful way of thinking yourself out of a, a dark period of your life. That's, you know, that's so fascinating because a part of uh, ego or part of just kind of identity, like, for example, oh, I'm supposed to be this kind of dad, right? Like, oh, I'm supposed to adhere to this sort of a, a norm or label, right? And act in these start, sorts of ways. When you deviate from that, it's like it disrupts those those notions, right? Yes. And could even uh, lead to kind of disrupting even that sort of depressive uh, yeah. self, right? Because like, uh, part, part of what, you know, might keep you in depression is maybe i mean there's different strokes for different folks as far sure, as this yeah, goes but sure. uh it could be identifying with certain thoughts that you might have in your head and then thinking oh that's that's me like oh i'm i'm depressed yeah. right now therefore that's my label but all of a sudden you start doing these things that kind of disrupt that the, your pattern right mm -hmm. and then by shocking yourself sort of out of that pattern uh, that that could lead to novel things sort of sprouting from there and take you out of that depression. Oh, and, and also, because uh, I want to add to that, because uh, Eric focuses on this a lot in terms of his other work, more so than on this book uh, or in this book. Uh, so we talk about interpretations, right? And interpretations that we have of ourselves. So yeah. I think what you're saying is that we get kind of stuck in our interpretations and we think we are this certain thing. So interestingly, Eric has a lot of great work on authenticity and that it's actually pretty complicated, right? And sometimes we actually get stuck in this kind of narrow way of seeing ourselves and it closes off possibilities to, you know, things for us, uh, you know, potential things that we could do, potential relationships we could have, uh, potential points of success or achievement or whatever, because we're stuck in thinking that I am this person. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I, I was taught as a young person that there's, that I have a true self and, right. and my goal in life as I become educated and experiences, find my true self. Well, I think that's really a frustrating and sometimes destructive belief because there is this idea that I'm the person who can do these things. And when we are feeling bad, we feel like, well, I'm the kind of person that will live out these events. That's just who I am. We're, so, we're locked into a character written for us. Um, but, but from what I've gathered and mainly through, well, I'll put it this way. Cognitive behaviors therapy has really been useful for me as opposed to say, depth psychology. I went through a lot of like Jungian psychology, even Freudian psychology. This kind of inward gazing didn't help me. The cognitive behaviors therapist says, look, we can change habits. If, if these things are making you unhappy, change these two or three habits and you, you'll probably feel better. In other words, it's very externally driven. And that hmm. speaks to me. It's, it's like we're all novelists and our self is the creation that we are writing. Um, but we're constantly, hopefully revising that self as life changes, as new challenges come our way. For some people, this might be a little scary because like, no, 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 I'm, I'm this person and I'm consistent with this person. I'm like, great. If that feels good to you, do it. I like the idea that I can, my, myself is a kind of like, 
it's a kind of gathering of potentialities and I can choose which potentialities I want to actualize. Um, there's a real freedom to that. And I think this book and also keep it fake is very, they're very, both very much about that, that, that we are sort of, we are living in potentia. We're living potentials and, and, and we're constantly deciding which potentials to actualize. And this book invites us to actualize those potentials and I hope stimulating and vitalizing ways. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, there's even that one exercise. Wait, wait, uh, uh, is it okay before we just move on? Because I really just want to harp on something. It's totally related. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Because, okay. so, yeah, Eric, uh, I know you mentioned, obviously, being in therapy. And I wanted to talk about uh, the diagnosis that you were given. Because mm -hmm. this was something, right, I listened to other podcasts that you were doing. And this was super fascinating to me. Um, so especially in the way that you kind of thought yourself thought of yourself as a father. Uh, so I remember listening to a segment where you essentially said something along the lines of when you were diagnosed with bipolar disorder, the thinking was, well, am I able to be a good father, right? What does this diagnosis actually say about my ability? So yeah, can we talk a little bit about that? And because this is why it's so important to me, because when you think of a true self, a lot of times what happens with people is they look at a diagnosis and they say, well, this is who I am, especially when we're getting into personality disorder, disorder territory. So somebody might say something, well, like, because I have, uh, let's say, obsessive compulsive personality disorder or uh, borderline personality disorder, like this is sort of my true essence. And whenever I'm going against that, or like, like, like you said, in behaviorist terms, we're acting as if that's a false self, right? That's sort of a character that I'm playing. So how do we kind of start thinking about this? Because in the terms of who we want to be and how we want to be in our relationships, we often do want to be a good father, right? We often do want to be a good parent, a good friend, a good lover, whatever it is, right? And then we have these diagnostic labels that are prescribed or subscribed or, you know, whatever term you want to use, they're sort of given to us. And then we're thinking, oh my God, I can never live up to that. So yeah. can you share about, yeah, your experience yeah. and what was that like for you? I'd be happy to. So, so yeah, when, when, uh, when my daughter was about one, two years old, I, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And uh, again, I'm just going to focus on my experience. I'm not going to try to make any kind of claims about how other people should, should conduct their lives if they're suffering from mental illness. But I, I feel like when I was, when I felt really, really depressed, it was a feeling of like indifference and apathy. It's like, I just couldn't really, care. I felt numb. I couldn't really no. care about anything. Um, either that or the mania would kick in and I would be so sort of revved up that I, that I couldn't think straight or really relate to other people in a, in a healthy way. And and I'll, I'll be honest, at that point, I, I would say things like I am bipolar. And therefore, I said to my, my wife, you, my then wife, um, you can't expect me to be a good husband and a good father. It's like if I had colon cancer or 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 like an amputated leg, you wouldn't expect me to run a marathon, would you? So there was a way in which I was I was using my mental illness as a way not to take responsibility, as a way to just saying, I, I, you don't expect me, it's not fair of you to expect me to do these things. Well, through therapy and through good medication, I moved from I am depressed to I have depression. And that, that little shift, is, it's what you were talking about. I went from being feeling like I was one with that mental illness to that mental illness is one of many ways that I express myself. And I I can and I started you know sort of gaining enough distance from it to try to make decisions about, yeah, changing the narrative. It's like biochemically, I'm I'm bipolar disorder. In the same way that if I get pushed off a cliff, I'm gonna fall down to the ground. Gravity's gonna push me down, but I can choose how to fall. <laughs> you know, like 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 if I'm falling into the ocean, I can do a gainer or a swan dive or a flip or, or a belly flop. So in other words, there are biological givens, but I, I do think if we see the self as, 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 as something to play with instead of something to live up to, 
um, then then we can think of life in those ways. We're all falling, but we can decide how to fall. Right. And was that the framework or the reshifting of it, of your framework of yourself? Was that a way for you to sort of uh, kind of mesh or live in harmony with the bipolar disorder to say, okay, well, I can't live up to the standard of being a good father, whatever, you know, your kind of yeah. objective understanding of that was, but I can be this type of father and that yeah. is a good enough father. Yeah. So th um, th thanks for asking that. So I, so I can refine this a little bit. I think I think the goal in life for all of us is 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 to connect with people, to connect connect with people that we want to love us and that we want to love. And for me to shift from being a traditional good father to being like crazy dad, I wasn't teaching my daughter lessons, but we we had we, we laughed all the time, which is better in some ways. So so yeah, I chose I chose this role, and it did what I wanted it to do. It may not have made me good with a big G, but it made me a father who could connect with his daughter. So that's really my goal is, I mean, it's, I guess it's all of our goals. And, but I believe that we can create narratives sometimes. We need to change the narrative sometimes. If we're not connecting with people, well, let's think about what we can do to connect better with people. Maybe we can change our narrative, change, change our story. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, being, being married to, you know, a particular label or mm -hmm. how you see yourself, it, it's incredibly damaging, right? In terms of uh, relationships and connecting with others. But uh, in my own experience too, like I thought, okay, um, maybe it, maybe right now for, okay, there was a time in my life where I was, uh, I kept very to myself. I, I, th I was thinking, okay, if I don't uh, interact with other people, like if I kind of stay like a hermit at home, let's say, I can't upset them. I can't say something that's going to make them uh, have a bad reaction or even I even kind of uh, did this too. For example, maybe I would hang out with my friends every so often, maybe once a month, twice a month, something like that. But then in my interactions, I would only show them like uh, surf, like enough of a surf, like surface traits mm -hmm. that would make it a pleasant interaction and seemingly like, like we're connecting, right? But then kind of withdraw and never allow for us to hang out enough where something deeper might come out because I was afraid of what is that, you know, what's going to happen? Are they going to see like what I'm really like and then have a bad reaction to that, mm -hmm. right? So eventually I thought that that, uh, that became kind of like a ridiculous thought to me. And I was kind of uh, along the lines of what you're saying, mm -hmm. seeing myself as like somebody who uh, was just this potentiality, right? And I could take on, uh, I, I could connect with others or if I do think that there's something at my core, that's uh, maybe unpleasant to somebody. Uh, why does that have to? One, why does that have to be true? Two, could that be changed if there was something bad? Uh, and then I started having all these thoughts that kind of made me think, okay, no, I I can go along a different path, right? Mm -hmm. um, even in terms of like, uh, let's say, achieving more in life or something like that. And this kind of relates to one of the exercises in the book, which is, oh, imagine you're. Uh, your life was written by a lazy God, right? <laughs> like you had a, like, like yeah. a lazy storyteller, right? Mm -hmm. And now knowing that, oh, uh, maybe, maybe you want to do something a little deviant from your story, right? To make that story more appealing to the lazy God, to make it more inspired, yeah. to be interested in your story. And I thought that was so weird, but at the same time, it's kind of, <laughs> I don't know, like you could even tell just a natural smile comes on my yeah. face. Like I, yeah. I found it very enjoyable as far yeah. as that goes. And it's, I don't know. I like, I like this kind of stuff as far as that goes, like knowing that you're not somebody who 
uh, has to be married to a particular character. You don't have to, we're, we're taught to have like, a, uh, this is something like I've listened to in a lecture with like Alan Watts before, mm. where uh, we're all taught to conform as children. And we're taught that you're supposed to have like one personality. Yeah. Uh, when, when you're a child, you have like one personality with your, uh, with your, uh, siblings, one with your friends, one with your teachers and all of that. But then at some point you're taught to conform and just have this one sort of steady, consistent one. Yeah. And it kind of, it's so, it's such a rigid, uh, confining structure that if you find yourself, you know, uh, stuck in that, uh, I don't know, it could have all kinds of consequences that aren't necessarily good in the long term. Yep. So. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I love Alan Watts. I spent my 30s doing nothing but listening to Alan Watts. And and I think I mean, one of his claims is that that this idea of the, the that there's a kind of essential monad of selfhood is Judeo-Christian, that it, each of us is kind of given a soul by a supernatural being. And our goal is to sort of be true to that. Whereas in the more kind of the Buddhist or Zen Buddhist tradition, there's a sense that an ego is just a, an idea or a construct. It's not real. It's something we imagine. And of course, Watts is always encouraging his listeners to, to em embrace that idea. I love that you said earlier that, you know, that, that exercise about imagine as <laughs> you've been made by a lazy God, how can you get him interested in you again? Um, but that's a, I guess the the as ifness of 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 experience is what most interests me in this book, and I have another exercise where I say, okay, imagine your childhood bedroom, and if if you could like put one object in that bedroom that wasn't there before, and then if you could rearrange that bedroom in the way you wanted, how would you do it? Which just opens up this kind of mind experience of like, well, if things have been shifted a little bit, would I be a different person? Which to me opens up to this idea that. Mm. I mean, if I ask you, who are you? You would say, well, I'm I'm the kind of person, I'm the person that this happened to when I was three years old. And then this happened to me when I was five years old. And this happened to me when I was seven years old. In other words, we start piecing together memories right. that kind of lead up to who we are now, that these, these experiences equal who I am now. But of course, you're choosing maybe what? 50 experiences out of 5 million. So, mm -hmm. so, so it's like already we're selecting the memories that we think make us who we are. And the memories you focus on now, 10 years from now, you'll focus on other memories entirely. So the idea is that even our idea of I-ness, of subjectivity, is based on a highly selective narrative from our past. And if we start seeing the past not as something given and static, but the past as this kind of, these kind of swirling narratives, and we can latch on to one and let the others go, that's empowering too. Because yeah. I think a lot of us think, oh, no, I'm totally shaped by my past. And to an extent, we are, obviously. But right. we can also create a past by choosing what we want to focus on in our memories. Right. And it's really complicated. And you know, it's so funny. Me and Alan were joking about the film Anger Management earlier. Have you ever seen that? Oh, a long yes. time ago. Yeah. Oh, that's Jack Nicholson, Adam Sandler. Yeah. yeah. So, so there's this great yeah. scene there that, I mean, it's comedic, obviously, because it seems so silly on the surface. But you know, Alan mentioned this, that he's like, oh, that movie's kind of like low-key poignant. So Adam Sandler's sitting there and he's trying to describe himself and Jack Nicholson. So he says something like, oh, well, you know, I'm like, you know, an easygoing guy. You know, I like the Jets or whatever it is. He's like, no, no, no. He's like, you're telling me about what you're feeling, telling me about who you are. He's like, okay, well, he's like, you know, I have this job. He's like, no, no. Now you're telling me what you do for a living. 
Eric. Tell me who you are. And so, you know, then he gets upset. And he's like, I don't know what you want me to say. And he's like, oh, wow, look at him. He's angry. I think the point was to show that you are not these things specifically, right? So we are sort of this hodgepodge of traits. We are the hodgepodge of thoughts, beliefs, experiences, potentials, whatever they are, because that's so hard to assess most of the time, right? But the thing is to say that, hey, I am this person. It's always going to be incredibly limited. And I love that about your work. What you're saying is that, again, going back to the diagnosis, and because I'm a clinician, I'm going to focus on mental health more. Uh, so when you're thinking about something like bipolar disorder, automatically the thinking is, oh, so that means this personality or this person's personality goes from these high highs to these low lows. And that's kind of it, right? That's all there is to them. They're either like really wacky and kind of outlandish or they're like really depressed. And I'm like, no, dude, have you met people with bipolar disorder? They're like regular people. They have interests and, and sort of hobbies and they have, you know, goals and they love people and people love them. And again, it's like well, a lot of times with mental health, it's caricatured where we have, again, this diagnostic manual and we expect only that from that person. And that's way too simplistic. So, so speaking of the DSM, I mean, this kind of goes back to some earlier work I've done. I was just interesting to note, and you, I'm sure you know this, that you know, the, the way certain mental health disorders were diagnosed, you know, say 50 years ago, and the way they're diagnosed have changed radically. So you know, what 50 years ago might have been seen as like normal grieving for, say, the death of a relative and like, oh, you're grieving now would be seen as a kind of clinical disorder that would require medication. So it just right. kind of bears out your point that these diagnostic categories are far from given and stable. Um, they're, they're, they're fluctional, too, because, you know, it's difficult to diagnose people and, and boil them down to one disorder. And then, you know, you get a lot of overlap too. Well, yep. um, bipolar, well, maybe you've got a little OCD as well, or maybe a little this and a little that, just because as you say, it's so, it's so complicated. It, obviously it's comforting to think reductively. And in, in the medical profession, you, you have to have these diagnostic concepts. I'm not saying we would do away with them, but I think it is important to note what you say, how, how nuanced and subtle and complicated every self is. Okay. I think it's just, yeah. what's so interesting, right? Is that, if, 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 for example, a function of the ego or of, of just, uh, I, right. Of just the self, right. Is that you will inevitably, no matter what identify or attach to some kind of a narrative, right. Or to some kind of a thought or a belief, then it's very fascinating and empowering, as you say, that you can actually sort of more or less choose what you might want to identify with mm -hmm. and thus make yourself more of a dynamic sort of a personality. Mm -hmm. Now, the potentiality in that is very interesting because then it's like, okay, so what can I do with that information? Mm -hmm. Right. And then that's where it kind of brings us back to uh, like some of these exercises, right? Yeah. Like you could, you could actually, I mean, so this is something I played around with. Um, I wish I had something like this book actually years ago. Uh, I kind of did a lot of trial and error. But uh, one thing that I did, and this might be sort of accidentally, is uh, when I would go to the uh, gym and let's say I was uh, running uh, on a treadmill or maybe switch to elliptical, whatever, I would listen to scenes from movies or from um uh, animes like cartoon shows and all that like certain like uh, maybe deep scenes and I wouldn't exactly listen to these scenes and take them one for one like what is that scene about I would kind of as I'm running try to imagine that like almost like a music video in my mind or like that something or that I'm the character and it, it's not literal like for example if somebody like is uh, vanquishing like uh, 
I don't know, like some kind of an evil entity or something like that. I would imagine that that's sort of happening, but that it might be like, oh, that's my ego that is now being slain. And then you get this like sort of feeling of a flow state or something like that. Uh, it could even be uh, me and my ego teaming up. We're not enemies anymore. And like something like that. Or maybe there is no ego. And like I went through different phases of this because apparently uh, fighting your own ego is uh, not a <laughs> smart thing to do, apparently. Uh, but no, but it's very interesting. And like these these sorts of things or these sorts of uh, uh, thought exercises can really, really shift up uh, your view of reality and, and break you out of yeah, dep yeah. Uh, depression and stuff. Yeah. yeah. So early in early, early in the show, I said that one of my definitions of the weird is the defamiliarization of the, of the familiar. Um, well, it's also the familiarization of the unfamiliar too. I mean, it goes both ways. So, so for instance, huh. um, one, I, I think one role of art, of you know, great painting, great poetry, great music, it, it is to defamiliarize the familiar. Um, I remember when I was sitting as a freshman in college, learning about Emily Dickinson, and the, for, for some reason, the first stanza of her poem, there's a certain slant of light. There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Like when the professor read that, it just, I was like, what the hell? Whoa, what the hell is that? And that, that whole poem, it just kind of threw me off to where when I started looking at light beams coming through the window, they didn't feel the same way. It, it's like, it's like the world had become kind of re-enchanted. Um, it, it, it's like, if, if you read like Walt Whitman's poem, Leaves of Grass, a long, long poem, but you don't think of grass the same way again. You see, um, you know, Van Gogh's Starry Night, you walk out in the nighttime, it's a little different. In, in other words, these powerful works kind of invite us to reorient ourselves to the world by kind of knocking us off. That's defamiliar, that's defamiliarization of the familiar, I say. But the other move, I think, is what you were doing, like where you, where you take like, like a film and, and you you take a character who feels pretty mainstream, like, well, I'll, I'll go back to my therapist in a, in a time of depression. He says, who are, who are some of your favorite you know, actors? And I said, well, I, you know, obviously I love George Clooney. He's like, well, okay, if you're walking into your classroom tomorrow, how would George Clooney walk into the classroom? I mean, it's like, not that I want you to be George Clooney, but it's like you're taking this like very kind of this movie star, very familiar, but you're putting him in this context of, you know, teaching freshman English. And it just, it just, it against these little tiny shifts that, that, that refresh our relationship to the universe, because sometimes we feel very stale and stuck. Um, yeah. So take something, you know, really well and make it strange, take something really strange and kind of apply it to your life and see what happens. I mean, obviously these, ex these exercises are, are mostly experiments. Like, well, just try that, you know, just <laughs> see what happens. Yeah. And I'm uh, so when you say that uh, that phrase uh, familiar familiarize yourself with the unfamiliar mm -hmm. is that if i understand correctly kind of also like uh starting to become comfortable with with mystery so to speak or uh yes yeah, so something along those lines i like think that's a big part of it i mean i i mean the, the main part of it and, and maybe i don't know if you feel this way but i mean i'm 55 and i, I just i just feel like i kind of know what's going to happen in life i don't i mean obviously new things can happen and uh, hopefully terrible things don't happen. But for the most part, we, we walk into a routine and every day kind of feels like another day. So so to just kind of alter that that routine, not in a way that like disrupts my ability to be a good husband and parent or do a good job, it just kind of yeah. pushes me off a little bit to make the world more interesting. 
that's one thing I mean by the defamiliarization, defamiliarization of the, of the familiar. I'm sorry, that's hard to say. By the way, these ideas come from a kind of school of Russian literary criticism in the early 20th century, um, Russian formalism. That's kind of where I'm borrowing this from. But yes, I also think learning to feel comfortable with, with confusion, ambiguity, mystery, and, and not trying so hard to find an answer immediately. I'm sure Alan Watts would say this is one goal we should have in life. Um, so, so the answer to your question is yes. That's a, that's another element to to the book. Like, try to you know, life's weird anyway. We don't have to make it weird. It's just weird. Um, mm -hmm. And just be okay with that. Don't don't try to solve the riddles. One of my exercises is write riddles that have no solution, uh, mm -hmm. and 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 on post-it notes, and put them on um, the mirrors of bathrooms and bars, <laughs> just so, just so people have a moment. Like, what was that? Um, yeah. Yeah, I love that. And so just academically now speaking, because obviously you're a professor, I remember when I was, uh, so there's, first of all, there's kind of a discontent. I'm sure you see it a lot of times in kind of universities where people are pretty upset about just having to go to class. And it's, it's monotony. And then it's also a lack of consideration. And a lot of times teachers are adjuncts, they don't necessarily care, they have other things going on. So whatever, you know, that stuff happens. But I remember what's so interesting is when I was in school, uh, there was this kid who was like, super weird, right? Really weird guy, brilliant, brilliantly, brilliantly weird, I guess, at the same time time. And so I remember we're sitting in class and he looks at me and he says, you know, how crazy would it be if I just got up right now in the middle of the classroom, took a shit and just walked out. And like, that's how angry he was. He's like, yo, can you yeah. believe like we're spending money on this? Yeah. So obviously, yeah. you know, it's, it's pretty crude, but I think the message was clear that a lot of people are kind of upset about the fact that they have to spend money on going to school. And it's like the same stuff, you know, it's a professor regurgitating textbooks. Yeah. They have the same, they have to learn the same material that they probably won't really even use in the world so eric can you talk a little bit about how you kind of spice things up in the classroom oh because, yeah. yeah yeah there you go yeah, yeah. That, 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 those are really great stuff like i remember thinking like wow i would have loved them as a professor well i mean i, I as, as as i mentioned in the book throughout i mean uh, two big influences on the book are like the, the dada movement and the surrealistic movement these are like early 20th century art movements that value absurdity the irrational uh so I'm not as I'm not as agile as I used to be, but I used to jump up on my on desks all the time. I mean, when I when I would I would I would I'm a romanticist. So I teach people like Byron and Keats and Blake and in the American side, I, I teach I teach Emerson and, and Dickinson and people like that. And, and and for me, teaching is performance. It really is. I mean, call me a narcissist, but I'm there. I'm trying to get laughs, I'm trying to get adulation. I just am. It's like this is this is what I'm about. So um I'll give you an example. I, 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 I was trying to teach students what a poet, what a poem is. What's the difference between reading a work that is a poem and not a poem? And I said, Emily Dickinson said, if you've read a real poem, you feel like you feel like you you get the top of your head blown off. So I read a Dickinson poem, and then I went like this, and I went bam, <laughs> and I gave myself a concussion. I hit myself so wow. hard, I got all dizzy, and I was like threw up later in the day. Um, I don't do that anymore. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like I feel like students, especially in the humanities, especially in creative writing, they they don't need to see knowledge as something out there that they can grab. They need to see knowledge as something alive here and it's fun. Um, mm. and it's 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 interesting. And I feel like that's I'm not I'm not saying I'm a great teacher. I'm just saying that's what I like doing. I mean, right. I like I like leaping up on the desk. I, I like throwing erasers. 
Um, I like climbing in the window. I mean, I, I don't do that stuff so much anymore. It's kind of a cheap effect, kind of a cheap trick. It's kind of like Dead Poet Society stuff, but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a great but, movie, though. But, but, you know, I'm I'm just I'm just very aware of not being boring. And I probably go too far. I probably pander too much to my students. But um, I, I don't want this weird student to take a shit in my classroom. Mm -hmm. Or maybe I do. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's exactly Maybe that's I'm kind of the point. Yeah, you know what's so funny? <laughs> that, that class was so awful that if you did do that, I promise you that would have made the entire experience. Really? Maybe, maybe yeah. that's what I should be going for. Maybe I'm selling myself short. Um, yeah. yeah, so yeah. But but I did, a lot another... of these exercises do come out of, I teach creative writing workshops. So a lot of these exercises I've tried out um, with students in workshops. And that was useful to kind of get a sense of what works and what doesn't. Oh, and interesting. Yeah. What, what are some of the sort of points of feedback you've received about them? Like from your students? They love them. They love mm -hmm. them. They, they just, well, part of it is because it's a game. It's fun. It's like, okay, let's, let's take 20 minutes and let, how many, how many, what, okay. You have a book in your hand. How many things can you turn this book into? Yep. And you know, get in groups of two and, and, and write, write that up or, um, how do you feel right now? Come up with like three concrete images for how you feel right now. Um, mm -hmm. all, all, a lot of those exercises and there's, the, I think here's, here's a big point we're not talking about part. I think most of us are taught to go through life having that everything should have a purpose, especially when right. you're in school, like professor, what's the purpose of this assignment? And in some ways, the purpose of these exercises is that they don't have one. It's just a way to pass the time interestingly. Mm -hmm. So many students that like, will be reading a poem like, what does it mean? I'm like, look, did you go jogging this morning? Did you eat a good spaghetti meal last night? Did you get a little buzz last night with your friends? See the poem that way. It's just an experience. You know, it's mm -hmm. just like experience five minutes in this world of language. Yeah, later on, figure out what it means and write an essay. But for now, just experience it. And I think these exercises are in that spirit. Like, I got 10 minutes. Let me make that 10 minutes interesting and playful um, yeah. without having a purpose in mind. By the way, what's so interesting about that? So Alan and I really differ on this, especially well, in this respect, especially. So he and I, we went to like with a bunch of our friends last night to the sauna. And so he and this is where, so I'm actually the kind of obsessive type, right? So I'm the one who's like, I can't relax. I need to have a purpose. We need to go somewhere. We need to be doing something. <laughs> yeah, 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 we need to be yeah. doing something, right? And Alan's like, dude, like, why can't you just relax? Like experience this. So he's all about that, right? He's all about taking yeah. things in, living in the now. That's kind of why. I mean, I'm I didn't, I didn't push it on you that much. <laughs> <laughs> that's what he was thinking. That's the mentalization part, right? Sure. So, but what's so interesting is that like, I can't get out of that. So for me, I can't relax. It's incredibly hard. So whenever I got to tell you, Eric, so even when I was looking through your book, my first question was like, what is the point of this? Like, what, what do I get out of this? Right. So if I kind of think about it, I don't know, three, four months down the line, right. What is it going to get? But sort of, but the thinking for you is that the experience itself is really important. And so I want to hear from your perspective too, but first let's start with Eric. Oh, I have a question just to tag. Oh, sure. Okay. Go. Go so would you argue that somebody who does not like to relax needs it the most? <laughs> does that make sense? Like, oh, this makes me uncomfortable. Therefore, explore that discomfort, right? Yeah, like, I would, what... I would say that probably. And I got to say, I'm not a very laid back guy either. I mean, I'm pretty neurotic. Um, right. and, and that's why I need exercises like this to kind of help myself slow down. I'm very project and, and oriented, like, so, so I mean, I'm, I'm, yeah, I feel like I'll, I'm always saying I need to relax more. I need to relax more. And for me, relaxation is learning to do things that don't have a purpose. My favorite poet, Walt Whitman, um, he, he liked to use the word loafing. Uh, mm. um, and then he was fired from any number of jobs for being a loafer. 
And what's interesting about loafing for me is it's like, I mean, the most of the time we take a vacation so we can relax from our work life and get refueled for more of a work life. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a way in which loafing, you're just, you're not doing it for one reason or another. You're just like inhabiting time in a way where you're just open to whatever's going to happen next. And I feel like that changes our relationship to time. Most of us see time as, oh, I bet I know what's going to happen next. But if you can kind of divorce yourself from that and just like, I just want to exist and be light on my feet. You know, Hamlet says the readiness is all like just just see what's going to happen next. That's loafing in a way. And, and at the end, I think these exercises are trying to open spaces where we can just let me put it another way. where We can just kind of embrace the world as isness and not mm -hmm. something that ought to be something else. I mean, I'm constantly saying, oh, oh, we ought to do that. We ought to do that. We ought to we ought to hurry up. We're going to be on time. You know, we ought to work out harder. We're going to lose weight. And that's fine. We have to do that. But there are these moments when you just go, no, I'm just I just am right now. I'm just going to I'm just going to exist right now without worrying about the outcome of that. Um, that feels weird to most of us. Right. Uh, it feels kind of unmoored. Um, and and that's that's those are the kind of experiences I want to encourage. Yeah, there, there's that feeling of I need to be doing something right now. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is, counterintuitively, loafing or just taking it easy, relaxing, even doing nothing uh, could have benefits too, right? Yeah. E e even so, let's say, you know, I have my phone here, right? Well, I'm not, let's say I'm not doing anything. And then to fill up, uh, you know, oh, I want to see something now just to be stimulated, right? Now, that could have a value to it. There are amazing videos. You, you could uh, potentially listen and watch a million different really beautiful things every single day and fill up your whole entire time with that. Don't get me wrong. But then there's another side to it where it's like, okay, well, what if you did do nothing and maybe you're not looking to something to kind of satisfy some kind of some kind of stimulus that you need you kind of leave a space open maybe then that's where you might start actually thinking about uh maybe your connections in life mm -hmm. maybe you are maybe you just do nothing and you just completely relax and it kind of brings you to this sort of uh um not necessarily harmony but you you kind of reset a little bit and now you have more resources to deal with those things now when the productivity comes like it has so many uses that uh and then even if it doesn't have a use right like i'm see i'm thinking in terms of a use or a mm -hmm. utility yeah uh maybe that's completely wrong and just being uh is its own reward yeah. right and, and i would yeah. also add to that so i think the message of the book is that for the individual the reader the person who's obviously looking into it uh is that you deserve to just be for yourself so mm -hmm. a lot of times and this is the thing that's hard for me to accept is that when we're thinking about purpose we're thinking always also about community right like what do i have to contribute right or am i contributing enough today and i think the book says like no loafing is okay you can literally just be for yourself and you're still likable lovable whatever it is right you don't have to always do but well, yeah. I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Plus, even even thinking that, uh, for example, even being in the moment has a value. Even if you are thinking in terms of community, yeah. it could be, it could be potentially wrong to think that. Oh, uh, I need to be doing something to be of use, right? Maybe uh, just being maybe just being like even a presence like it, listening to somebody right. yeah. just an active listening you don't have to even contribute anything but essentially just being there as a space uh could be good for somebody else too yeah so um 
I'm, I'm so glad we're talking about this topic. I'm, I'm just thinking just right, right off the bat, three, three exercises are trying to encourage exactly what we're talking about. And there's science to back it up. So here I'm saying just exist, but here's why. So one is, you know, make yourself bored. Studies show that, that when we get real good and bored, we often have our best ideas. We often gain insights because when we're looking at our phone, we're, you know, we're, we've got other things in our heads and, and we don't get that kind of deep thinking. So one exercise is just stare at a wall for 10 minutes and, 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 and see, and see what happens. Another mm -hmm. exercise is make yourself a, a niche, like a special place in your workspace or your house where you go like 30 minutes a day off and on and just doodle or look out the window where you're just giving yourself a space to, to, to loaf. It's a designated loafing space. And another is, and this goes back to, to Alan Watts, um, you know, take, take a walk and your only goal is to look at like fences and, and gates and holes and imagine what's on the other side, what's on the other side. Don't look, but just, just play with what's on the other side. And you can say on the one hand, all those exercises have no other purpose than yep. to encourage an interesting, rich experience. But also possibly they might have a larger purpose of making you feel more creative for that moment or, or helping you gain an insight into your life or the lives of others that you didn't have before. I guess the main purpose of this book, which is not about living a purposeful life, <laughs> is um, you know, how, how to just how to feel more connected to the world. And that can be your community. It can be yourself. It can be your, your close friends. I mean, obviously we all want that and probably all books are about that on some level, but I, I hope that I'm, I'm offering kind of a, a unique angle, um, right. a playful angle. And that's the, if the book's not playful and fun, a little funny, it, it's not doing its job. I mean, I rather, I rather draw little pictures in there. I mean, I, I just want, I just want it to feel like, Oh, what the hell? There's something whimsical about the book. Um, at the end of the day, I know I'm talking about it very seriously, but, but I hope it is like a kind of book you can just open up, put in your bathroom, put on your coffee table and just open it up randomly and just read a little bit of it. Like, ha, that sounds good. And move on. Or maybe do the exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I like the one where you make up your own curse word. Like that, that, that was fun. Yeah. No, like yeah. imagine like yeah. you make up a curse word that is not even one that exists. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It probably did. Somebody has said this, but like, oh, uh, fucktacular or whatever. Just like yeah. you could say whatever. Mm -hmm. And then like, uh, I don't know. It, I, you see it. You see the reaction. I don't even have to even explain it, but it it just puts a smile on your face. You know. I hear. Yeah. You. yeah. I love doing it. And also, people you can be people think it's funny. <laughs> yeah. Adam yeah. was like, "That's that's amazing." Um, that can't. By the way, that go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, right now I just remembered something. Yeah, even in that uh, particular chapter, it mentions how uh, you you reference uh an not an experiment, uh, research that says that people who curse have a better sort of a, a pain tolerance or mental yeah. pain tolerance. Wow. Right. So yeah, uh, technically, yeah. yeah playing people around who with curse, curse while working out can push themselves harder than people who don't curse while working out. Wow. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I was going to ask you guys up front, if this is a kind of podcast I can curse on, cause I curse like oh, all the time. I'm, mad yeah. man. I'm yeah. trying to you know, keep it rated G, but <laughs> yeah. no, it's okay. No, we can curse. Yeah, we've yeah. Cursed before. Well, I'll try to get yeah. some in later. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And just going back to the sense of purpose, you know, and this is yeah. why I think that you actually are a great father, obviously not knowing personally <laughs> what kind of father you are, but this is why I would say that you are. So I had a really tough upbringing. And then, so for me, the focus was always the family and other people. So with like kind of my old man, my stepdad, he would always say like, 
like, well, why are you wasting your time with this stuff? Right. So I used to re- so talk about eccentricity, right? So I love professional wrestling. Love it. Right. Oh, so, yeah. Oh, my God. So it's like the great to me. It's like the greatest thing in the world. Right. So when I was a kid, my stepdad's like, first of all, I don't understand this. Right. So he's, he's like, it's not real. And that's number one. Number two, it's all exaggerated. Like these guys don't. This is all they're all on steroids, which is obviously true. He's like, nobody really looks like this. Right. And number three is like, what are they actually like doing for the world? Like, how are they helping people? They're not right. Not really. Uh, but so for him, the idea was like, okay, if you're investing your time in something, it has to be purposeful in the sense of the bigger picture. Right. And for him, honestly, it was mostly money. It was like, how are you not being a burden? Right. How, how is professional wrestling going to help you not be a burden to the family? And so for me, I wish I had a father who would say like, yeah, I know this is super weird. I know this isn't even really that popular, but here's why you could do it for yourself. Again, going back to the idea of it being okay to just be for yourself. And so, and I love that you, I'm sure you do that with your daughter, but the idea is like, you know, if she's super creative or if she's doing something that she just likes, again, that doesn't contribute in any significant way to like, you know, society or like move civilization or whatever, just makes money. Right. Uh, but she can do that because she's allowed to do, she's allowed to just focus on those eccentricities and say to herself like, oh, wow, you know what? Yeah. Maybe a lot of people don't like this. And yeah, maybe it does look super silly on the surface, but I like it. I, I, I'm the older I get, the more I value the ridiculous. I mean, mm-hmm. I, mean I think it, it, it's harmless. Um, it, 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 it's a way to pass time when you're engaged and interested. I mean, I, I, I grew up, I wasn't, I mean, I grew up with Ric Flair and Dusty mm-hmm. Rhodes and Wahoo McDaniels, all, there you all, go. The, all those guys. Um, when I was a kid and I, and I loved it too. And, yeah. and I just, I don't know. I think Alan Watts has a phrase, um, charming irrelevancy mm. um he, he says that he says that's ultimately what art is it's a charming irrelevancy it's not quite that but i like that the idea that there's certain things in life that they're just there to make life feel a little better even if it's ridiculous or stupid that might be the point right. and i just think we need to i think we need to make space for that in our lives we, we need to watch professional wrestling for 30 minutes today if we want to or whatever it is because strangely enough, and again, we're talking paradoxically again, that will make you more productive, probably, yeah, yeah. Um, because you won't be as uptight. Yeah. yeah plus, you know, uh, I hate to say this because uh, you guys are making points about the irrelevancy of it, mm-hmm. but uh, I could actually argue how it's relevant. Sure. Too. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you're learning behavioral science, right? Oh, uh, like this will like if you act in this way, that's going to cause the whole crowd, crowd, the crowd to true. cheer. Yeah. yeah that's or. True. Uh, the the concept of uh, uh, I forgot what it's called, baby face or heel. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, if somebody's right. like a hero or like a villain, a villain yeah. and the reaction of the crowd too. Yeah, and how even a, a villain could be liked. Mm-hmm. So that kind of explains some things kind of in your life in a weird way. You're like, wait, that guy's an asshole, but uh, that yeah. girl uh, likes. Oh, what's going on over there? Like little. I, this I'm just thinking yeah, randomly. This is right. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. It's, so, it's I, so I, I wrote a book some years ago called Everyone Loves a Good Train Wreck, Why We Can't Look Away, which is about morbid curiosity. And mm-hmm. a whole chapter on violence in comic books, um, which most people would condemn. But it turns out it's extremely useful um, in kids learning about life, not only these kind of relationships you're talking about, but also what it means to be powerful. I mean, mm-hmm. most kids experience violence in comic books not as like, oh, I want to go kill people, but oh, I feel powerful. Um, because a lot of kids who read those comics aren't necessarily, you know, the alpha types, um, right. and it gives them yeah. a sense of power. So I wanted to say that, but then I wanted to like digress a little bit. I saw Bruce Springsteen, um, in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1987 and mm-hmm. Ricky Steamboat sat wow. right in front of me. What? And he, he had on this amazing leather jacket and he looked so cool. 
And and the whole concert, we were like, should we talk to him? Should we talk to him? Mm -hmm. At the intermission, he just turned around and said, what's up, guys? And we shook his hand. And I was like, yeah, Ricky Steamboat and Bruce Springsteen in the same night. I'm done. Oh, you know what you would love? Oh, my God. So (laughs) we, we actually had Diamond Dallas Page and Jeff Jarrett on our podcast. No way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and, Je- and Jeff is really great now because he's like back in wrestling. He's in yeah. AEW. He's about to like win some championship there. So I'm sure you remember Jeff from the Memphis days because like, you yeah, know, the yeah. territories, yeah. obviously. Yeah. 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 They're great people, man. And like, what's so it- right. And what's so interesting is that now it's finally come to a point where it's becoming acceptable. Whereas again, you know, like 50 years again, and this is sort of the upbringing that I had uh, older men were like, and that's, that's kind of the thing with my stepdad. I think he was just embarrassed, like for him and for the family that I was into this shit. You know, it's yeah. kind of like, like, what's wrong with this kid? Like go play like, you know, football or something. Yeah. And by the way, every single time I asked him to go to a wrestling show, he would say, look, if you want, I'll take you to a basketball game. I'll take you to a football game. I'm not taking you to that shit. Cause that's a waste of my money. And yeah, for a long time, man, it took me forever to get to a wrestling show and now when we go i'm like wow it's like you know 10 year old me would love this but i'm assuming you know in terms of the dad you are you would be like yeah if your daughter were oh totally came on let's go totally yeah and you know the thing the thing is i I mean now i know that i mean i've done some martial arts and stuff and like those guys are amazing athletes i mean to to do those jumps and flips and acrobatics i mean i'd break my shoulder immediately if i did any of those things so when i was a kid i was like those guys aren't real athletes like no they're amazing athletes yeah yeah all right so alan any final kind of questions for eric before we start wrapping up yes uh if we wanted to follow you follow your work and of course uh buy the book uh, where could we do that well you can buy the book at any major website where you buy books um you can also request it from your local bookstore um i'm on i'm on facebook i'm on instagram i'm on twitter uh, i have a website which is ericgwilson.net that's ericgwilson.net and you can find links to my Twitter and my Instagram and my Facebook from the website, ericgwilson.net. Yeah. I love it. Eric, awesome. thank you so much for coming on, man. Oh, this, this is was fantastic. Such an epic this is love so cool. it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Right, thank man. you so All much. Right. Yeah, All right. We'll talk care. to you soon, man. All right. Bye. Bye. Okay. First of all, time flew. Yeah. But hey. anyway, everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram. And on Twitter, we're at C's underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit Hit the the bell bell on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.